Well, you can say hi if you want to. Hi, this is Howdy. Hello. Hi. <laughs> hi, this is Greg Lamont. Welcome to the Velocast. Nice, really nice, yeah. Hello everyone and welcome to the Velocast. This week we'll be catching up on a few of the news items that have caught our eye over the past few weeks, including the dust covers going on the Tour of California, an astonishing time in the individual pursuit, Sam Bennett's saga finally drawing to a close, and it's knives out in the battle between the UCI and Velon. But first, originally scheduled for October, the medical tribunal looking into the conduct of former former Team Sky Dr Richard Freeman is now underway. At stake is not only Dr Freeman's future ability to practice, but also the possibility of doping charges surrounding his ordering of testosterone whilst working at British Cycling and Team Sky headquarters. And in a sport which has provided us with some truly astonishing reasons for the presence of banned substances, Freeman's claim that Shane Sutton bullied him into ordering testogel for his erectile dysfunction may be the most astonishing of them all. I tell you, who would have thought that the week would start with us having ingrained upon our brain the image of uh, Shane Sutton's flaccid junk? I mean, just, I mean, this is what cycling has done to us this week. Think of it. Picture it in your head. Shane Sutton's 62-year-old flaccid penis. It's called and- a reverse planker, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've just realised something. If Freeman's <laughs> allegation is correct here, Shane's todger is the only thing he hasn't been able to bully into doing something. I tell you what, though, I, I really object to having to record just now because I've been following uh, the, the tribunal on on Twitter through Dan Rohn's Twitter feed and it sounds like soap opera of the, the highest order. Four minutes ago as we record, uh, Shane Sutton stormed out of the tribunal with the chair appealing to him to remain as he stormed out, uh, calling Freeman spineless. And a brief 15 or 20 minutes before that, he had to stop for 15 minutes for a fag break. <laughs> I mean, you, you were kind of relaying some of these things to me, and as you say, it seems it seems wrong that we're, we're having to record while he was, was testifying. So thankfully, I can't take my eyes off it. <laughs> thankfully, he stormed out, giving us at least a chance to, to sum up what has gone on thus far. Uh, this, of course, um, relates to the the inquiry that the Department for Media and Culture in, and Sport at the House of Commons had, had set up into to these allegations, mm. chiefly concerning Bradley Wiggins and the whole Triam Cinelone and, and Jeffy Bag. And Dr Freeman became the absolute focus of, of that and therefore a medical tribunal was, was set up just to, to to look into what happened here and whether he'll be able to practice medicine in the, the future. Now, 18 of the 22 charges laid against him have been, to use the, the medical tribunal's terms, admitted and found proven. Uh, and, and really, apart from his future as a doctor... What's at stake here is this this potential for doping allegations to be re-looked at um, by Cycling UK or British Sport um, because the original claim that was made that this uh, tester gel had been ordered in error, mm. I'm sure everyone remembers um, this, this being the excuse, well, that's been proven to be untrue. It, it wasn't returned to fit for sport, the com- the, the medical sports wholesaler uh, in the, the, the north of England. And Freeman got, according to the, the notes we've had from the medical tribunal, a, a Mrs C who m- must be the, the representative for fit for sport, um, he got her to send an email claiming it had been returned. Uh, and this, of course, was, was then proven to, to be a lie. Yeah, and she she did that, she said, because she trusted him because she was a doctor, or he was a doctor, rather. Um, they'd ordered it specially to, to fulfil his, his orders. Um, so I don't think there's any doubt now that it was ordered intentionally. Freeman has admitted that. Uh, he's admitted to 
to ordering it. And this is a, a slight conflict in what he says. You know, on one hand, he says that Sutton bullied him for uh, the aforementioned flaccid junk. Um, and my, my research for a friend on erectile dysfunction um, indicates oh, a, a that... a friend, a friend. Okay, John, <laughs> sure. Testosterone what, what age are you again? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm that age, but let's not even go there. Um, testosterone isn't what you'd choose if you were uh, having that particular issue. Um, but then he also says that he ordered an obtained it knowing and believing it was to be administered to an athlete to improve their athletic performance. Now we've had some people say it was only a month's supply um, and that is a, a, it's a valid argument if you accept that it was the only time it was delivered. It may be the only time that it was delivered and somebody else noticed it had been delivered. You know, that's that's the background to this. And the other thing is, as Conor McGrain of Cycling Ireland pointed out, it's only a month's dose in normal medical therapeutic use. If you were using it to microdose an athlete as to someone who had a testosterone deficiency, you may use it in completely different dosages. So it could last you longer or it could last you less time depending on your intention. And once you move out with that normal therapeutic use, uh, you, you can't compare it to you know normal durations of dosage. So, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, of course... The usual suspects and actually some very reasonable people on Twitter are, are citing this as the thing which brings down the whole um, the whole house of cards. You know, people are calling it the Brailsford affair. Um, you know, just extrapolating Dr. Freeman's admitted malpractice, admitted mistakes into you know the the whole Team Sky project and British Cycling before it being founded on on feet of clay, and it may come to that. You know, this Freeman thing may well bring down that whole house of cards because Sutton's testimony today is, is absolutely stunning when you look at it. And he's not going to be, he's not going to leave it at that. You know, and Shane Sutton, if he is thrown in front of a bus, will be the one who drags everybody under the bus with him. But equally, you know, it, you can't extrapolate it too far. We have to wait and see what happens. We have to get our ducks lined up in a row and be sure what we're doing. But just now, at best, it leaves a horribly bad taste in your mouth, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, you, you were telling me that um, Mary O'Rourke, who's Dr Freeman's um, QC for, for this tribunal has revealed a text that, that Shane Sutton sent to, to Freeman just over the weekend there with a, a kind of threat to keep your mouth shut or I'll I'll be dragging, you know, don't get involved in this or I'll be dragging you and a, lo a whole load of other people yeah, uh, down down with you. Yeah, the text, the text to which she read out at the tribunal said, um, be careful what you say, I can drag you in and you won't be the only person I can hurt. Which has all sorts of horrible implications. I mean, whether it's certain threatening members of Freeman's family, which is, you know, the one thing that instantly sprung to your mind, because we have all of that background. And the reason why he left BC of him just being a bully, you know, that's been accepted. It's been, you know, shown through through numerous testimonies from um, lots and lots of athletes who worked under him, uh, right down to him calling, you know, the Paralympic athletes wobblies and all that sort of thing. But it could also be if, you know, if you pull the string and I go down, I'm taking everybody else with me. So, I mean, that text in its own just adds to that, that foul taste that I was talking about. And and the thing with, with Shane Sutton, I mean, I, I don't think I'm going too wide of the mark to suggest that he's not the sharpest tool in the box. Only ever read one book, apparently. That, that was another <laughs> thing that came out in the testimony today. No mention of what the book was? No? Janet and John go cycling was my theory, which for, for Scottish people and probably British people of a certain age, is uh, it's, it's a, a first reader's book series. Yes, yes. Uh, but what I was going to say is that surely to... To essentially put a lid on this, Shane Sutton, as we said earlier on, he's a 62-year-old guy. We, we know he has a wife who's much younger than than himself. Where are we going with this? Well, I was going to, <laughs> to, to an unfortunate and unwelcome place, I, I will grant you. But even if it wasn't what you would really be required to, to take for erectile dysfunction, he could at least try and put a cover on any potential 
um, doping organisation mm. at Team Sky and British Cycling by saying, all right, okay, fair enough. My wife was looking to get pregnant. I'm getting on a bit. Um, and we thought this would help. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't seem to want to do that. He's he's claiming that was absolutely not the case. So we're then left with this question, well, what was the testosterone for? If it's not for his dodgy dick, <laughs> what did he what did he get it for? Was and it's, it, got, it's got to be said, going by his behaviour today and, and all of the previous stuff that uh, we've seen, I don't think he really needs any extra testosterone. <laughs> um, unless, and you know, I, I'm half joking there, but what I'm not joking about here, because I've been chatting to some of um, my, my friends who are into, uh, shall we say, performance enhancing their, their bodybuilding, where testosterone is, is widely used. It is one of those things where if you do become used to it, you tend to just keep, even after you stop competing, just using it to give yourself a wee pep up. You know, there, there's a whole category of drugs where essentially you become low-level addicted to them because of the response that they provoke in your body. Um, so there's all sorts of questions. You know, the other thing that's come out is Aruk has mentioned testimony from someone who said they saw testosterone vials in Sutton's fridge in the late 90s, early noughties. Saw him inject it at his house, to which Sutton says it was somebody who was done for um, growing dope and who was angry with him and wanted revenge because Sutton had insulted him after his wife left him. Um, Rirk says that he's got the guy's name wrong so I mean the whole thing I mean excuse my uh, my profanity but it's just a fucking mess it really is and and the, the other aspect I noticed in this was that um, Mary O'Rourke is considering the, the power of, of a medical tribunal to force well we can only assume the Daily Mail as it was Matt Lawton at, at the Mail who blew the lid on all of this uh, a, a well, two years ago, is it now? A year yeah. ago, two years ago? Uh, to hand over documents, she says, the Daily Mail has on Shane Sutton. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, the one thing that's come out is I think a lot of people were doubting that Freeman was fragile, shall we say. You know, having mental health issues, he's talked about his anxiety. And we pointed out when folks said, you know, if he's good enough to appear for a boot tour, he's well enough to testify. Is that anxiety is it's, it's a fickle mistress. You know, what you can cope with and what you can't cope with aren't necessarily what people who don't suffer it would regard as, you know, the common sense things. Uh, you can be up one day, down the next. The specific stressors of a, a situation like a tribunal can be enough just to completely shut you down. I'm watching the pictures of Sutton. You're seeing things like him demanding a screen. Uh, so that he doesn't have to look uh, at Shane Sutton when, you know, Freeman, he's, he's just, he is coming across as genuinely a fragile person. So the other possibility which we have to consider, and this will deeply upset the tinfoil hatters, is that what we have here is just a very, very dysfunctional man, completely out of his depth, uh, doing, you know, dodgy stuff, but it's not indicative of the whole system. I, I have no strong opinions either way on that now. I think we have to wait and see how this plays out. I think that's a distinct possibility, but there's also a distinct possibility that the whole thing could just be a, you know, a load of bullshit. I, I've yeah. got no idea. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, the one thing that did kind of strike me when, when reading through this is that, you remember Brailsford's subsequent claim, public claim, that the, the test of jail was ordered in error and had been returned that was essentially made on in good faith based on this false email. So you can kind of give Brailsford a wee bit of cover going, well, here's when I looked at this, when I w- was confronted with this issue, I looked into it and found corroborating evidence, even though that, that we now find out has been trumped up by, by Freeman. And as he claims at the behest of of Sutton, who was bullying him into going ar- around doing this, not necessarily covering up the, uh, in the email, but but in ordering the testosterone in the first place. The, the absolute nub of all this is Shane Sutton, his role, what happened to the testosterone, and who else knew about what happened to the testosterone. And this is why I can't understand why Shane Sutton isn't just saying, yes, it was for erectile dysfunction, because it could provide the cover that Team Sky needs to get out of this. If he keeps shouting his mouth off, 
then he is going to end up exposing if if there is um, some manner of conspiracy here, exposing the other people who were involved. Yeah, maybe you know, maybe a, an Australian's pride in his penis is more important than <laughs> professional um, cover. Because the other thing that's happening, and I, the one thing I cannot disagree with those who are and have been sceptical of you know Team Sky and, and British Cycling etc. for a very long time, is that we are getting that drip, 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 which often presages. Um, teams getting into difficulty, shall we say. You know, you've got the Jiffy bag, you've got Brailsford saying the doctor flew out to see Emma Pooley when Emma was, what, three or four hundred miles away. Um, you know, you've got them lying about whether Brad was at a bus at a particular time and all that kind of stuff. Now, all of these may be innocent mistakes, but it's an awful lot of innocent innocent yeah. mistakes starting to pile up in a team which has been extremely explicit about their attention to detail. Mm-hmm. So we are at the stage where there may be fire behind the smoke. Um, and even, I think, rampant fanboys have to admit that at the very least we owe this serious consideration and, you know, just pay proper attention to it and watch how it develops. And, you know, who couldn't? Because it's bloody good fun watching this anyway. <laughs> I expect this podcast to be interrupted at several points if if Shane Sutton does decide to reappear at the, the medical tribunal because, as you say, it is soap opera stuff. But moving away from that for the moment, uh, after going public with their antitrust complaint to the European Commission regarding what it claims are the UCI hampering the development of Velon's Hammer series in favour of its own events. The group has now added the charge of gender discrimination following the UCI's refusal to allow a women's event as part of its Norwegian Hammer series. Yeah, Velon, that great champion of women's cycling, eh? I mean, there's... there's a, <laughs> <laughs> There's a meme, of course, which goes around where you get two two parties involved in some manner of dispute where the, the obvious reply is, well, why can't they both lose? Because I do find myself in a battle between the UCI and Velon going... No, there's nobody I'm really rooting for here, is there? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things going on here. The first is that Velon have zero history of being even vaguely interested in women's cycling. Now, we can say that they've had that road to Damascus experience and they just decided to to really go in with both feet, introduce it. And we can genuinely laud the idea of same events, equal prize money, all that kind of stuff, when we've seen... ASO roll back La Course until it's just a joke of what it was supposed to be. You know, it's almost insulting now. Um, so we can we can laud Velon for that, but we also have to bear in mind they have not shown the slightest soup zone of interest in women's cycling. There are eleven of the world tour teams, I think, in it. Um, there's virtually no representation for for women's cycling at the organisational level. So why suddenly? Um, unless they saw this coming and thought it would be a nice wee uh, hammer to beat the UCI with. So Velon, I'm sceptical about. People know this. You know, we've laughed at Velon since it started. Um, You know, they're they're trying to get a bit of a pie that's already there without adding much value to the whole thing. The Hammer series has been... I mean, I've seen a lot of people say, would you miss the Hammer series if it went away? And overwhelmingly, people say, no, yeah, it's entertaining if you watch it, you know, if you've got a spreadsheet ready to work out the points and, you know, work out who's doing well. And you enjoy watching eight men team pursuits when all the teams come together in the time trial as they did that first year. But also, there is no obligation in the UCI to grant a licence to a race. You know, they have the power of decision. So... To a certain extent, there's not much you can do about that. If the UCI decides your race isn't for them, they're tasked with promoting the sport. So, you know, you can argue, but ultimately you're going to lose. But equally, if you're the UCI, anything at this point is in the interest of women's cycling. You know, there is such poor exposure. They've done such a poor job developing the sport after all their proud words of, you know, starting with... Uh, actually starting with Pat and then going on to Brian and, and, and you know, now we've got David and they all say the right things, but nothing really ever happens. So, you know, they, they haven't shown any real interest in the future of women's cycling. So who are they to deprive the women of a decent day's racing and a decent payday? As you say, I want both of them to lose. Yeah. I mean, it's just a mess. It is a mess. I mean, to, to Velon's case uh, on the grounds of antitrust... 
they're saying that the UCI today believes that it should not only be the regulator for the sport, but also take new business creation from its stakeholders without their consent. I think they actually have a point there. And we've talked about this in the past, that... Hey, at Fund- least they're no use in the team's own money to do it this time. Well, this is true. Uh, fundamentally, <laughs> the UCI should have no business, pun intended, being a race organiser. Yeah. You know, th- th- from a, a, an antitrust perspective, a governing body owning a race, which is therefore in, con- in competition with other race organisers, should not be allowed. And I don't I'm think it flashbacks will- here, mate. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I don't think it will result, or, or this will be the result from this particular case before the EU. But really, when you think about it, the UCI should have the worlds taken away from it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, to be honest with you. I think the UCI should probably have cycling taken away from it. Um, Time and time again, it looks after its own interests under the guise of promoting the sport, which is something else it shouldn't be doing as a governing body. And it continually fails both the riders and the fans. So the, the, what is it, the thing about the the enemy of my friend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm, mm. Um, I, I think this is something we've talked about for the last decade, um, through three presidents, uh, through you know numerous um, meetings at World Championships, um, from the point where you know they did take the team's money to set up a, a private race promotion company, uh, you know Alan Rumpf and, and Pat and all of that bunch. Um, I think I've become almost bored, and to be honest. Listeners got bored for a long time because there was so much to rant about the UCI that I remember for a long time, every week we were finding something that the UCI had done wrong. And I think we've almost become inured to that. You know, I think we are now at a stage where they're just, it's kind of like the whole kind of Trump Johnson thing. You just get so much crap that over the years you realise nothing's going to change so you stop caring. And that's wrong. You know, we should still care and the UCI is still not fit for purpose. I'm going to come back to the fact that it is packed with grassroots folk who are passionate about the sport, who absolutely love the sport, who work their knuckles off, you know, doing race promotion on a local amateur level, uh, all of the thankless admin tasks, you know, that that you see in Cycling Scotland, where, the, you know, they used to have the porter cabin at Meadowbank, and all of that stuff is fantastic. People who care, people who work hard, and at the top, you've got a class of people who are now almost universally despised whatever sport you're talking about. And that is the career sports politician. And that has to change. Now, the way that they get their gravy train going, the way that they step up to, you know, the boss level, which is the IOC, is through things like the World Championship. That's how they get the income to pay themselves the salaries, which, you know, let them have lovely houses in Eagle or whatever. Um, But they do the sport a disservice. And this is just another case of... It's just... Almost sorted argument. It reminds me of all the arguments that they had with the ASO until the ASO wielded the big stick and said, well, we've got the tour, we'll just go and do what we like. And suddenly, you know, the UCI folded. Velon don't have that kind of power. I suspect they'll lose this argument. But, you know, it's it's no coincidence that we've been talking about the same kind of crap from the UCI for the last 10 years. But Velon have been such... Such an annoyance to me since they started with their sense of entitlement that I find it very hard to have any real sympathy for them. Very true. Um, now, moving on, Mario. It's a cheery show, isn't it? <laughs> well, we're trying to make the best of a bad situation. Spring here. Classics last time, I was really, he- you know, I was really, I was fired up. It was the off season, but I was still getting really enthusiastic. This this is this is not a cheery show. No, no, look, John, if you can't find joy in Shane Sutton's forlorn and wrinkled penis, then I'm I have I've no sympathy for you. Yeah, that's anyway. a joke in there somewhere. Okay, <laughs> carry on. Mario Cipollini has undergone surgery oh, for a heart Jesus. condition where muscle has grown around the coronary arteries, resulting in restricted blood flow. The 52-year-old has said that by talking about his condition, he hopes he can save other people. I agree, Mario. I really do agree. You're a cautionary tale for people to stay off the human growth hormone and the testosterone. 
mostly steroids actually. I, I refer you to my early conversation, earlier conversation about bodybuilding chums. Um, there are lots of links between long-term steroid abuse and heart conditions. And while I certainly wish Mario Cipollini all the best, you know, he's been a colourful character in the history of the sport. A guy who who never really got fat. You know, there was that whole pro cycling thing. You finish, you get a bit chunky, um, you know, and you, you do the rounds of the bars and the trade shows and all that kind of thing. Mario just got more and more naked and more and more buff after he retired. Um, and I find it hard, and it, this is my tinfoil hattery, I find it hard not to link that with the kind of known side effects of development of plaque, um, un, or non-regular muscle growth as a result of steroid abuse, all that kind of thing. And you add to the fact that he's also currently having a wee court case for, was it pointing a gun at the head of his wife? Yeah, he's um, on, currently on trial in his hometown of Luca for threatening his former wife, Sabrina Landucci. Allegedly. Uh, Alleged, well, yes, she recently claimed in court that Cipollini, uh, Cipollini physically abused her and pointed a gun at her head. Cipollini is yet to give evidence and has refused to comment on the trial. You you can, like you donning the tinfoil hat, you, you reason you bring this up is because that sounds like good old-fashioned roid rage. Yeah, it does. Although splinters are weird. You know, um, you have to be... D- unbalanced to a certain extent to get stuck in to the extent that Mario Cipollini did. You know, he was a magnificent sight with those leonine locks of his flying back in the wind as he rammed his elbows into sundry people's face if they had the affrontery to try and pass him before he crossed the finish line first. Um, But certainly there's a lot of dots to be joined here. Um, Let's let's hope he gets well. Um, Let's hope that uh, the case is resolved in the correct and just fashion, you know, with whatever um, whatever verdict they come to. But there's an awful lot of pro cyclists of that generation who I think are going to have health issues as they get older. And I think we'd be idiots to, you know, not to acknowledge that, just as we'd be idiots to say the sport's clean now. You know, the, the history of the sport, the, the era when Cipollini competed was arguably the, you know, the dirtiest in the long history of the sport in terms of not necessarily the amount of uh, performance-enhancing drugs being taken, but their sophistication and their efficacy. Um, So I think Mario may well be not the first, but one of a long line of people who are going to suffer health issues later in their life. You know, arguably, it's what caused Armstrong's cancer. You know, lots of those American juniors, or a number of those American juniors of his generation had very similar issues. Um, there's, you know, all of the talk about the, you know, having to get up in the middle of the night to, to do um, jumping jacks to keep your, your heart going for EPO. Um, who knows the side effects of, of ICAR and all that kind of stuff, which isn't even licensed for, for human use, but it's being used in the peloton as we speak, allegedly. Um, it's... It's a difficult equation, you know, if you're coming from a working class family and somebody says to you, if you take this, you can provide for your family. I'm not going to, you know, I don't know what I'd do. But you have to accept that there may be long-term uh, long-term effects and I've got a sneaking suspicion that's what we're seeing with Mario. Get well soon, mate. Well, get well soon indeed, but I think he could probably help more people by... I mean, if it is the case that, that Mario Cipollini doped throughout his career, which, as you say, it was in a time where it was rife, I think he would be better helping people by saying, look, I am a cautionary tale. I am now having to go undergo five hours of heart surgery because of the abuse of chemicals I undertook during my professional career. I'm also up in court for pointing a gun at my, my ex-missus. So as much as I, I, on a human level, sympathise with what he's going through, I think in order to be what he wants to be, which is helping save other people, he should probably come clean if he has a past to come clean about. Yeah, to effect change. What's that yeah. Jimmy Cagney movie? Is it Angels with Dirty Faces? Or it is indeed, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great scene, that. Mm. Now... I'm, I'd look, don't get at me, John. Don't literally shoot the messenger here, but 
Next story. Amnesty International has called on riders and teams who will be participating in the inaugural Saudi tour next year to use the platform and speak out on human rights violations. The non-governmental body has not called for a boycott but has said the event is a prime example of sports washing. I think they're exactly right. And it can join a long list of um, events that are parts of sports washing, including events in, you know, my own beloved China, where the Uyghurs are, you know, dying by their thousands in re-education camps with millions of people. Um, you know, Xinjiang has has terrible things happening, and yet I raved about the scenery and the people at Tura Guangxi. Uh, if you're talking about Saudi Arabia, who sells them the arms that they use to commit atrocities in Yemen? We do. Um, I, the UCI... I'm going to Qatar, for example, has not just its feet, but its entire lower half submerged in a bath of dirty money. But so does sport. You know, so does sport. Um, And it needs tackled. This would be a good place to start, but you can't just pick this as the one kind of shibboleth and say... This is it, you know. This is this is this is the the hill in which we will die. Saudi Arabia are, are evil, and let's face it, you know, somebody who cuts up a journalist with a bone saw in their own embassy, and a you know, in a third nation, um, is well worthy of censure. The treatment by um, the new young um, Saudi prince is or Saudi king. Is, is appalling, the way he's treated members of his own family, the way he's established his power, his relationship with, you know, the likes of Jared Kushner. All of that is is horrible, but you have to look at the big picture as well. Yes, use Saudi to make a point, but don't just think we can do that here and everything else will carry on as normal. There's dirty money and sports washing going on not just in cycling, right around the world. Why the hell is the World Cup in Qatar? You know, workers dying building the stadiums and it's going to have to be held in the kind of heat that is just absolutely stupid for a world-class sporting event. Why was, you know, I, I, I could go on and on. You know, it's, Yeah, but I mean, to, to answer all of that, we can, I mean, I know at times we do go off piste and talk about things that aren't strictly to do with cycling. And I guess this is to some extent one of them. But our our remit here, if you will, is to talk about cycling. It is the little bubble in which we, we live. And, and when Amnesty International are, are calling on any participants to, to speak out, it does it does focus our attention because of of cycling being involved on why Amnesty International are making that that call um, f- to to highlight a regime where torture is used as punishment, there's routine execution, there's no freedom of expression or association or belief, protest as a criminal act, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, just yesterday, Saudi State Security Services posted a video on Twitter which labelled feminism, atheism uh, and homosexuality as extremist ideas and said all forms of extremism and perversion are unacceptable. It's a good place to start, isn't it? It is a good place to start and, and, you know, you're, you're right to say... The, the Saudi tour isn't the only object in the world that should provoke some some feeling of, of disdain and disgust. Uh, disgust. But we we do have to focus on this one because it's in the news and that's what we, we kind of do here. Um, and it's part, and of a, it's part of a far wider programme by the Saudi Sports Wash. Yeah, of course, you know, of with, course. With boxing and golf, um, Paris Dakar rallies entirely in Saudi Arabia this year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, although I'm saying it's a wider problem, we have to start somewhere, don't we? Yeah, and and also you know, to to your comment earlier on, just talking about the UCI and being in the position to be the the Caesar in and the 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 auditorium putting a thumbs up or a thumbs down to any to grant any license it chooses to, it could quite have easily refuse this the same way as it refused a women's race in, in 
in Norway. Um, and you've got the biggest... Can you guess why it won't, though? I, have, I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, but maybe is it money? Is it money, it John? It might be money. Yeah. It might be money. And the not only is the governing body at fault here, we also have to to really, really criticise the, the organiser who's taken their services to Saudi Arabia, ASO, the biggest organiser in, in the sport, who yeah. have just simply declined to comment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've got folk really cheerful that Mark Cavendish might have a resurgence at Bahrain. Um, I'm not taken away from, from the Saudi aspect, and I think it is a really good place to start to take a stand. And I hope that people do. I genuinely hope that they do. Because, you know, if, if a bit of a stink is raised... Um, there are certainly people who aren't as aware as they should be of what's going on. And the Saudis are doing all of this sport and stuff on purpose. Um, but what what it's done for me is, again, I'll come back to it, it's focused just on how much dirty money there is swilling around cycling. Um, and... Uh, cycling, it, uh, sorry, I, circling around the world, you know, if you ask me. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't even have races going on to take my mind off how depressing this is. Well, we've got some... some uh, kind of racing of of a fashion later on in the show, or coming up shortly in the show. So you can you can talk gleefully about that. And I, I, in fact, on to some better news. Well, it's better news unless your your name's Ralph Denk, I guess. But Sam Bennett has been given the go ahead to move from Bora Hansgrohe to Deconic Quick Step next season. The Irish sprinter had been embroiled in a contract dispute, which saw the German team determined to keep him in the ranks and the twenty nine year old seeking more opportunities, specifically in the Grand tours. Yeah, um, going by the long history of cycling transfers, it's hard not to think that some money changed hands here. Um, from who and to who, we we may not know, but I suspect Ralph Dink won't be quite as upset as he might have been um, if Sam had just, had just left without any argument whatsoever. I think it's a great move for Sam. Um, apparently Bora offered a swap for Alvaro Hodge. Um, and Patrick Lefevre said he wasn't interested in cattle dealing, which is an interesting way to talk about his riders. Um, but Sam has really developed at Bora. I think they've they've done a good job for him right up until this last year. And I think it was a pivotal year in his development. He was suddenly making strides forward, winning far more than he had previously and looking like one of the flat-out best sprinters in the world but wasn't getting quite the opportunities he needed. And I don't think there was any prospect of those opportunities arriving. If he goes with the kind of form he had this year to to um, Decane and Quickstep, we talked just last week about how Decane and Quickstep are, are perfectly willing for anybody in their team to win. And the other riders, if they see one of their teammates with a better chance, will, you know, without thought, put themselves at that rider's disposal. If Sam goes with the form he had this year, that's going to mean a lot of wins for him. I think it's a great move for Sam. Bora, you know, they'll manage. They've got some decent riders. It's not like they've suddenly turned into Dimension Data or whatever. Um, and it it was one of those moments in cycling that was leaving, not the kind of foul taste in my mouth that the whole Freeman uh, debacle or Saudi Arabia leaves, but it was making me, it was a bit sordid the way the whole thing was dragging out. And now it's finished and we can move on and think about what Sam will achieve next year. Well, speaking of that Gypsy Rose John, Sam Bennett, you would presume, will make his long-wished-for tour debut in 2020. How do you think Deconic Quickstep are going to play that? Is it hunts for, for stage wins, or do you think they'll actually be looking for him to challenge uh, in the, the green jersey? And the reason I ask that is, you know, next year may be the first time it's been doable for someone other than Petter Sagan for quite some time, given that he's going to be doing the Giro as well as, we presume, the Tour. Yeah, it's a great shout. And remember how well Sam's climbed on occasions this year. And that's what you need for the green jersey is, you know, one, you have to be there at the finish. You know, the sheer consistency of Sagan's in top threes and tour stages is what wins him the green jersey as much as, you know, winning stages themselves. But you also have to be there in those intermediates in the mountain and medium mountain stages. And Sam can climb. You know, he's a good climber in his day. So, yeah, it's, it would be a good objective. Um, and if you add it to what we saw with Philippe for the Count Quick Step this year, uh, their one-day races, it'd just be another feather in their in their, their cap, wouldn't it? 
Mm. Now to to the racing itself that you've been so looking forward to discussing. Uh, Filippo Ganna has said that he'll be willing to attempt the hour record after twice having broken the individual pursuit record at the World Cup in Minsk, where he clocked in at a jaw dropping four minutes two point six four seven. At sea level, um, I I. I <laughs> I'm almost, I'm genuinely almost speechless with this. I, I mean, I, I know that you aren't the biggest fan of a time trial, but for me, the two purest time trials in the world are the 4K pursuit and the hour record. Um, and they both require track craft. Uh, they require slightly different profiles of endurance versus pure speed, but, you know, are very relatable. And they're just... Man against man in the pursuit, man against the clock in both of them. And Ghana is just magnificent. You know, Steve McCaw, who we've done shows with in the past, um, veteran hours record holder, uh, Scottish 50-mile time trial champion um, and the, the second fastest time at the time behind Graham O'Brien. And, and my long-term friend and I were chatting about this. Um, and I just sent him on WhatsApp an expletive written message which ended with you know 402 at sea level and Steve came back and said yeah super impressive you know Ghana's a legend he's watched the progression of Ghana um, and really rates him as a as a time trial and pursuit rider he's the best the world's ever seen you know his, his time uh, would have on his own placed him very high in the Team Pursuit World Championships a scant few years ago. Um, it, it frankly pisses all over what I regarded as incredible times from Chris Boardman and his Superman position, which is, I think, still faster than what they're allowed just now. Um, just breathtaking. I mean, I remember shivers going down my back watching the German team be the first team pursuit team to go under four minutes. And I think if Ghana went to altitude now, he would break four minutes as an individual pursuiter, which is over 60 kilometres an hour from a standing start for four kilometres. Absolutely breathtaking. Um, it was one of those moments where watching it live, even on the telly, you knew you were watching history being made. And some stunning performances as well from people like John Archibald, you know, of, of Team Hoob and Scotland, Katie Archibald's brother. Um, just absolutely, not just world-class, but best ever world-class performances from them as well. But Ghana stands alone at the, the top of this. Um, uh, just a, a breathtaking performance. And he's got the skill set we've seen in both Boardman, Abri, you know, all of the track greats who went on to, to tackle the hour record, more so than the road guys like Indurain or Rominger, who just used their, their raw power. The track craft to sit, and Steve's talked about this, we, Steve and I did a show a, a long while ago, and we talked about the track craft that it takes to sit and hold your line, to resist the forces in your upper body for corner after corner over the 4K, and then as, as you move on to the hour, it builds up. And it's not just the physical and aerobic effort, it's just the, the pain of those centrifugal forces. The track craft to cope with them, to hold your line, to take the shortest line around the bottom of the track, will stand them in good stead for the hour record. And it made me so happy when I saw that he, he put it as one of his objectives. He talked about doing a tour, uh, to a grand tour to build his endurance and then going for their record, hoping that the team will allow it. Now, we've seen Team Ineos, not the cycling one, do the not racing but fastest marathon thing. Um, to put the air record on the shelf, I think would be you know to apply all of that technology in the way that we saw them do it with the the marathon sub two hour, uh, marathon distance sub two hour would be magnificent for me because you know that for me, half of the thing is the physical endeavour, but half of it is the technical excellence and innovation that drives time trialing. I think the fact I've waffled on for probably five minutes now without you getting a word in edgeways tells you how excited I'm about this performance. Just absolutely stunning. No, it's fine. I've got half my ironing done during that. I'm, I'm perfectly <laughs> Made happy. Made the supper. <laughs> Nipped out, got some shopping. That's the one. Um, just on the... A comment that um, Filippo made regarding looking to do a Grand Tour for uh, the endurance aspect of, of the hour record. And I have to credit 
our friend Derek Troy for 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 this as a as an idea because it hadn't occurred to to me, and it's it's one I'm sure that you'll be able to to appreciate, John. Ghana's actually had a pretty decent season at, at Enios this year, and with clearly that kind of power in his legs, and now looking to to increase his endurance, specifically it has to be said for the aforementioned hour, Enios actually might be sitting on yet another Grand Tour winner here. Yeah, no, it's it's he'd have to learn to climb better, and I think what the mistake some people are making is underestimating how important the track craft aspect of this is. You know, he's got that power, he's got the position, he's got the the ability to perform over four k. But if you look at the road, there are people who he frankly pisses all over on the track who are beating him in road time trials. Now, part of that is because he has a different set of responsibilities. Of course he does. But part of it is he's just a superb track technician. Um, I think you could easily see him... For me, it translates more towards, you know, big one-day races almost. You know, you could see him breaking away with 40k left at Flanders or something. He's He's got the kind of physique where he could... He could literally turn his talent to anything. But why would you move away from being one of the best track endurance riders of all time? You know, it, it's Well, he's it's only a 23. Niche. Yeah, it's a niche, but what a bloody niche. Because you can still... I mean, even... You look back in the, the role of owner that is the hour record, all of the greats of the sport are in there, you know. And he look, he's looking to add himself to that. I could easily see him... Just smashing Bradley Wiggins' air record. Well, I was uh, going to bring know. Wiggins up because I think it, an answer to why he would want to break away from being so good at, at this particular niche is you just need to look at, at both Cavendish uh, being a fantastic track rider and Wiggins being an incredible track rider who then went on both to win the Tour de France. Granted, one of them may be now under uh, somewhat of a cloud, but we'll... we'll you know, put that aside for, for one minute, I, I think that he could, with him only being 23, achieve everything he wants to do very quickly on the track and then, as he matures as, as a rider, move himself, which he already is doing, as I said, he had actually a pretty decent season for Ineos this year, could move himself quite easily into becoming a very, very good road rider, especially in Grand Tours. But I do accept, you know, that... At this point, the one-day races like Flanders and Roubaix might be where that power really, really showcases itself on the road. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, the world's his oyster at 23. I should point out that I, I was thinking about sea level there. I know that Victor Campanarts went further than than Wiggins at 55.089, uh, but that was in, in Mexico. Um, and the, the amazing thing about Ghana's record... In the, in the pursuit, is it was 402 at sea level, you know. You add altitude to that, you could see 57, 58 kilometres easily, uh, which is just absolutely breathtaking, you know. Mm. I, I mean, it, it, he's, he's unique. And we've seen, just because of the whole Ineos thing, and I, I refer you back to the... You know, the drip, drip, drip I was talking about earlier. Um, I've seen a lot of people go, you know, come from nowhere, blah, blah. How can he do this? Steve really is a, a proper student of the track and he's watched Ghana develop and he had no hesitation whatsoever just saying, class act. Um, so, yeah, it was it was fairly stunning and an event which I love. I mean, the, the one thing I haven't touched on because we've already bashed the UCI is why the f isn't it in the Olympics? Oh, Danny, <laughs> you know, just don't. Just you know, don't. <laughs> for me, the individual pursuit was the along with you know match sprint um, and maybe the kilo, which also isn't in the Olympics anymore. They were the three. You know, real blue ribboned events of the Olympics for me in track cycling and partly I'm a tester and I'm perfectly prepared to accept that and you can add you know, your point race or whatever if you like but they were the three that really got you going you know it's just oh, it, it's such a thrilling event the individual pursuit and we saw that and what you saw was a you know a, a, a world's best performance ever from a rider who at 23 is only going to get better 
Well, finally this week, the Amgen Tour of California has announced that it will not run an edition in 2020 and its long-term future has also been cast into doubt. Organisers have cited financial problems for its absence next year. It's toast, isn't it? Um, I think I think you're right. There are very, very few events that, that manage to come back um, as big and as as good as they were after even just a year's absence and and it given their citing financial difficulties it's kind of difficult to see how they're going to resolve them, themselves to the extent where it can come back as a as a yearly um race that that's a fixture in the calendar yeah i mean one of the one of the great joys that i've had in recent years in the tour of california for all that we mocked it for you know claiming it was the the fourth grand tour and all that kind of stuff in its developmental years is watching our friend jan valencia pull his um his volunteers and his, his admin skills together for you know the race whenever it ventured to the you know his fellow club monterey area particularly the the Laguna Seca racetrack, which is very dear to my heart. So I, I will miss it. Um, what's the biggest stage race in America now? The Tour of Utah, probably? Yeah. Um, road racing in America seems to be undergoing a, a period of crisis. That's offset by the fact that I could easily see the biggest event in American cycling being Dirty Kansas. Very soon, you know, the rise in gravel racing, we've seen Peter Stetton move over to gra- gravel racing as his primary way of making a living. Uh, lots of people seeing it as, as a way forward. And, you know, there's that entry drug of things like Strada Bianchi for people who want to get into it. Uh, as a mass pursuit pastime, it's fantastic. And the Americans really seem to embrace and be embracing that. So I think there's a healthy grassroots development of cycling which will spawn a pro level in events like, you know, Dirty Kansas, we've seen the pros riding the Leadville 100, uh, even, you know, back before He Who Must Not Be Named. So there are healthy races going on, but traditional road racing is is really in crisis in, in the States just now. And if, you know, an event like the Tour of California with worldwide exposure, you know, we could watch it in telly in Scotland, Fair enough, it's some stupid time of the night that made me feel sympathetic for our Australian chums when they're watching the tour. But, you know, it had full wall-to-wall coverage. And if they can't raise the money, what chance do any of them have, you know? And just one final point on on this. I, I guess it's fair to say this would explain Petter Sagan's debut appearance at the Giro next year as, as much as anything. And, and given yeah. that was announced before this announcement of, of the Tour of California... Is that is, a chicken or an egg though, mate? No, I think Petter obviously had wind that this was coming um, and decided that well his his mate is now free and and should probably go to 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 the giro yeah i, I, I kind of agree although i did see a lot of people say you know the power of peter sagan he decides to go to the giro and the amgen tour of california collapses peter's important i don't think he's quite that important <laughs> <laughs> well that's all we have time for this week merci to le monde for for joining us today and hope you can do so again next week for another edition of the velocast <laughs>